The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. It's so great to see so many of you joining Barry and myself today. I know that I am really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, it was my sixth time at the World Economic Forum at Davos last week. And while I know the event sometimes gets a bad rap for being a little bit out of touch, there's absolutely no question in my mind that if you approach the week with the right attitude, you can learn an enormous amount. And what we're going to try and do over the next hour is talk through some of those learnings, have a conversation, and hopefully get some questions as well. So in a nutshell, I feel like Davos continues to shine a remarkably useful spotlight on the issues that matter to the business world, helping to frame geopolitical context in a world that sometimes appears to have been turned on its axis. And in particular, I find that its convening power is remarkable. And I've seen that from my conversations with civil society leaders and NGOs, for example. It offers the kind of opportunity to shape government and corporate policy that simply doesn't exist anywhere else. So out of that comes lots of learnings and lessons and observations and trends, which Barry and I will discuss over the next 60 minutes. And I'll start off by saying that I felt this year's Davos was a fairly unique affair. And I think that was down to the prevailing mood of the world, where you have, as many of you will know, a very fragile geopolitical state, characterized by trade frictions, by polarized nations, and indeed by the declining influence of multilateral bodies and treaties that have held together the world order. Indeed, the very kind of multilateral consensus that really defines Davos. So that's a useful note, I think, upon which to embark on this conversation, which begins with our first learning, Globalization 4.0. So Barry, I'd put it to you, with so many political leaders staying at home, what did all of that mean for Davos this year? Well, it was definitely an interesting year, right, to have the theme, Globalization 4.0, when last year we had 27 heads of states, and as Irun and I can attest to, Getting down the street last year, the traffic, the security was over the top. And this year was a little bit more relaxed because there were a lot less heads of states. Many of them dropped out, interestingly, as you talk about the domestic issues happening in their own hometowns, right? We had Trump in the U.S. with the lingering federal government shutdown. Theresa May with the Brexit turmoil, Macron focused on France's you know, Yellow Vest movement, um, even China sent a more junior delegation this year. So I think it's been an interesting year um, to have that theme, and a lot of the no-show leaders that weren't there represented about 42% of the planet's population. So what happens when that happens is the business agenda really took center stage. The CEOs became the superstars. There was a lot of discussion about the public-private partnerships becoming the cornerstone of the collaboration this year. And I think that we saw across the board, um, you know, companies in many cases, and we'll talk about that a little bit today, stepping in where sometimes the governments are actually not making progress to help fill the gaps. 
um, political editor-in-chief John Harris talked about a rueful acknowledgement that government leaders are desperately improvising, often with bleak results, to meet the political crisis of the moment, much less the long-term technological and climatological challenges of the age. So in my mind this year, really, it gave the corporations and the CEOs and others a chance to step in, and even in many cases, the NGOs and activists, and have a stronger voice. Indeed. And, you know, it's interesting because people often love to talk about the mood at Davos. I think that's, that's one of the more popular headlines. And I would probably say the mood last week was more subdued than usual. Um, as you mentioned, it was definitely more business-focused, but I think people appreciated that, actually, especially um, the business leaders I spoke to. They felt like it was a productive week for them because they were able to talk about issues that mattered to them without necessarily being distracted, perhaps, by, you know, some of the more polarizing political figures. I mean, I think we all, we're all aware last year the star of the show was Donald Trump. Um, this year there was no one of similar stature kind of taking no. away the spotlight. Um, and even I don't think that was a bad yeah. thing. Yeah, even the media said to me they felt last year the need every day to cover Trump because he was on the last day. It was like the lead up to Trump. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? It became such a dominant theme that it really didn't allow some of the other things to come forth and center. So I agree. And some people called this the laid back Davos, but I think it was just a little bit more easier to get around and to kind of have, as you say, the kind of meetings and conversations in a different way than you did years before. Indeed, and, and perhaps because of that, we saw emerging to the forefront, um, rather than you know, the, the, the political headlines that accompany um, leaders like Donald Trump or, or, or Theresa May or Emmanuel Macron, we actually saw issues taking center stage this year, I felt, to, to more of an extent than in previous years. And that takes us to our second slide. Um, and people often ask, uh, you know, what was the biggest issue uh, that came out of Davos in any given year. And I think this year it's probably safe to say that it was climate change. Um, and in particular, uh, much more of a focus on solutions. Um, Barry, how did you see the whole conversation around climate change playing out in Davos this year? Yeah, well, like you, Arun, I've been there a lot of years. And when climate change first started, Really, the sessions were about even trying to prove that climate change was real, right? And then last year, we had a lot of focus on the oceans and the plastics. And this year, it was really a shift to talk about solutions. I thought one of the most interesting things about climate change this year was the two key spokespeople for climate change. One was a 16-year-old and one a 92-year-old, right? And that also talks about the breadth and depth of the types of people that are speaking out at the World Economic Forum. You know, Sir David Attenborough, who has been an advocate for this for years, and no surprise with Prince William interviewing him, was probably the most tweeted um, and retweeted kind of thing in Davos this week. And he claims the Garden of Eden is no more. Right? His life has been bringing attention to this cause, and he noted that species that we're even, you know, are disappearing now, and it really is going to require us to do something different. Um, some of you may or may not have heard of Greta Thunberg before. Um, she's a Swedish climate change activist at 16 who's done school walkouts and um, really um, had a strong voice in Davos for a young woman. And she told the delegation, she said, adults like to say they want to give children hope. 
I don't want your hope. She said, I want your panic. And she went on to say, I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. I want you to feel as if the house is on fire, because it is. So I think when you have those kind of voices coming out now, right, it changed the whole conversation. The other thing um, that we saw is a new area um, at Davos, right outside the convention center, called the Loop. And for those of you that don't know what the Loop project is, the, really the goal of the Loop is to remove the need for single-use plastics in consumer packaged goods. And a lot of our companies, right, the Nestle's and PepsiCo's and Procter and & Gamble's and others, are really working hard to say, um, how do we work with TerraCycle and other companies to create what we're calling a circular economy, meaning it's not like you're going to take your packaging and then throw it away, but you're going to create reusable packaging that gets returned. And in fact, Nestle with Haagen-Dazs launched some packaging there that they're testing now that looks like a metal container, right, that they're going to fill with ice cream, you're going to take it home, and then you're going to bring it back, and they're going to refill it. So I think for a lot of us in this business, too, this circular economy and really change of the dynamic on who's going to clean up the mess and how are we going to change and go to zero waste moving forward is a real opportunity for us not only to think about how to introduce and change packaging, but really changing consumer behavior. And I know I'm sitting in Vienna today, and it's very different here than it is even in the U.S. or other places in terms of their focus on that. But worldwide, we have a lot of work to do to reinforce to customers that this is something that's going to become a new priority. Yeah, of course. It was, um, without a doubt, I think, the most important topic that was addressed um, in Davos last week. And I, and I love that the way you framed it, actually, in terms of the oldest and youngest participants at Davos. Um, Greta Thunberg, of course, with one of the quotes of the week, I thought, when she pointed out uh, the paradox, let's say, of, what is it, 1,500 private jets turning up in Davos when so much uh, of the conversation is around climate change. Um, so let's move on to our third slide, which I think I imagine is a topic that is close to everyone's hearts these days. Um, it has become something, I guess, or it's become a little bit trite, perhaps, to say that every company is a tech company. Um, but at Davos, it seems like every lounge is a tech lounge. <laughs> I mean, I think there are people perhaps that remember when Davos was not dominated by the big tech companies, but I certainly don't remember that era at all. And now when you walk along the promenade, it is festooned with the logos of big tech companies, right? I mean, we're talking Facebook, Google, Salesforce, the big parties, I'm told, because of course I didn't actually <laughs> attend any parties, in Davos. The big parties are thrown by the tech companies as well. I think uh, Salesforce, Cloudflare, and TradeShift are not even particularly well-known tech companies at that. But of course, the, the, the serious issue here is that we're clearly seeing technology disrupting every aspect of the business world. And that comes through uh, not just from the logos and lounges, but from the conversations in Davos, from the policies that are being driven in Davos and, and, and from the challenges that companies are facing. So we're seeing technology reshape such disparate industries as retail, health, financial services, supply chain. Barry, is, is everyone a tech company now? 
Well, certainly, I think all of you, if you talk to so many of our clients, right, everyone is leaning into tech. It's becoming part of the DNA and really a table stake even, right, in the agency business and all of our companies. I think the key now is going to be how do you differentiate because innovation is almost becoming a ubiquitous word now. Um, you know, Bernadette Whiteman, the managing director at British Telecom, talked about how even a company like Starbucks now is more focused on marketing its app than marketing its coffee. And if you think about that, right, those of you with the app are ordering in advance, you're paying with it, it becomes a whole different relationship with that organization through technology. You know, MasterCard was showcasing kind of the Internet of Things and the way just we've disintermediated um, so many ways of payment to get access to people all over the world. And I think that, you know, as we think about it as an industry, that tech companies are going to have to become different kinds of storytellers. They're going to not have to be a leader in their industry, but talk about how they're pioneering in a way that's going to change the outcome. You know, last year we talked about robotics and reskilling and the loss of jobs. And now there's a big focus, again, on companies, you know, being prepared to reskill, but also to retrain and to rethink about how they go to business. And certainly around too, right, we saw the positive and the negative sides of technology, as you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, on the positive side, we've seen um, companies using technology to drive their positioning, their storytelling. I've never seen technology um, so central to brand storytelling as it is today. I mean, the risk, of course, with that is that not every company is a tech innovator, right? But every company does, I think, have a tech story they can credibly tell. So that's probably the risk. But the bigger problem, as you mentioned, I think are the, are the concerns that are raised by this kind of onslaught of technology. Um, and I think many people are concerned about threats like data breaches, about cybersecurity, and perhaps most prominently of all, um, about job losses due to automation. Um, and I just wonder, Barry, I mean, how, how big are these risks for communicators who are charged with, I guess, reassuring their communities that um, this deployment of technology doesn't constitute a risk to them? Well, I think the risk part and who owns your data, right, continues to be a huge issue this year. Um, some of the darlings, like Facebook and others, right, are a little bit this year on their apology tour and looking at things differently. Um, even this week, right, with our Apple phone, we've seen security risks and people being able to listen in to, you know, your calls. So I think that the risks are real. But the opportunities are real also. And I sat in a se session on healthcare where we talked about, you know, all of the data being combined to get to better outcomes and disease. You know, we can cure disease much faster if we curate all the data that's out there. You know, the wearables that we're wearing now that are going to kind of, you know, have your EKG on it and be able to talk to your doctor so you don't have to go in and early warning signs and prevention. So it is the yin and the yang right now. I think we're trying to find ways to protect that data and to make sure it's secure, and we're seeing the benefit of those things if we can. But there are things we're going to have to work together for sure, and I think it's going to continue to be an issue for years to come until we um, kind of sort it out and get ahead of it, and we haven't yet as a society or as a technological group. 
Yeah, and of course, I guess one of the, the you know the big concerns takes us to our fourth trend, um, and that is this idea that jobs are going to be increasingly automated, um, and that we will indeed be replaced by robots. Um, I think in in the New York Times, Kevin Roos wrote a, a very interesting story last week, where he reported a, a, an automation agenda on the part of many corporate leaders. Uh, and this is the kind of thing, I think, that will give rise to um, a lot of angst amongst employees that are currently in the workforce. But Barry, perhaps you feel that there is some sort of protection that we have against um, the rise of the robots. Well, I think, yeah, last year I said, you know, besides Trump, blockchain was the number two said word. Um, and AI and blockchain were still ubiquitous. Um, but what really resonated with me this year is the combination of, and we've talked about it a lot even at Ketchum, is the left brain, right brain combo. Is no matter how sophisticated automation gets with processes like integration and adaption of data, that the truth is it's going to require the creativity of the human brain to turn that data into something memorable and to create that human interface, right, that people want to engage with whatever that robot or automation is. So I think um, Fast Company ironically held a program called Davos Dialogues as well and highlighted the complementary roles of technology and creativity that are going to play in transforming business over the next decade. And there was a lot of talk, no surprise, from like the CEO of Legos that talked about there's going to be a bigger need for creativity. Um, but one of the things, too, that I heard that was a new term, I always try to come back with what are some of the new terminologies, is Burning Glass Technologies, a labor market analytics firm, came up with the term hybrid jobs. And what they talked about is that hybrid jobs of the future are going to involve creative thinking and analytical or technical thinking. And their estimates is that overall job growth is expected to grow 10% in the next 10 years. But the most hybridized jobs are projected to grow 21%. So for those of you whose kids are in school or you're thinking about their future or you're thinking about reskilling yourselves, right, they're talking about these hybrid jobs are not only going to pay more, they're going to have only a 12% risk of being automated compared with a 42% risk for a lot of jobs overall. So I think that as we think about the future and we think about this kind of hybrid of creative and analytical, that that's a place that we're going to need to focus. And certainly in our industry, we're seeing that as well, um, that the combination of taking the big data and the analytics and working it with the creative is going to be critical to our success in the years to come. Indeed, yes. And I think, um, I think many people would perhaps you know, even if it's on an unconscious level, they'd probably empathize with that idea of, of, of hybrid skills as, as being of particular importance in these kind of communications and public relations roles as well. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to number five, in which, Barry, you're going to try and persuade us all not to get too worried about a global recession. <laughs> um, but. The reality is that there was a lot of talk of uncertainty at Davos, and yet there was more positive business indicators than you might have expected. So talk us through that and help us understand the macroeconomic context. 
Yeah, so you can't talk about Davos without talking about the macroeconomics and the global landscape. And for those of you that have watched this before, you know I'm a little bit of a crush on Christine Lagarde. But I think that um, the tone for the week is she set right out the back, right, is that we've had two years of solid expansion and the world economy is growing more slowly than expected and the risks are rising. And I think you felt that, right? You felt the IMF downgrade global growth. Um, you felt PwC kind of came out with their CEO survey indicating a more pessimistic view for growth in 2019. But most believed that there would not be, at least this year, a global recession, but that some local recessions were far more likely. Um, certainly, too, you have the slowdowns in China, um, the possibility of no deal in Brexit and what's that going to mean, the fading benefits from the U.S. tax cuts, and then add in, right, the trade wars, kind of, there's so much uncertainty right now that I think that, um, that there's definitely that, you know, economic blue fo focus. Um, you know, Ray Dalio spoke in the U.S. of a recession potentially in 2020. Um, but I also thought um, that what was interesting is you had two other people on a global basis. Um, the Bank of America, Michelle Mayer, said recession predictions are a bit premature. And Lynn Doty, the U.S. CEO um, of KPMG, warned about the dangers of being too pessimistic. You know, she went on to say we have to be careful that we don't make this a self-fulfilling prophecy, that the negativism of, you know, would really suggest something different than the underlying data. And particularly in the U.S. economy, we could make this self-fulfilling if we're not careful. So I think there was a lot of discussion right now about, you know, local, global, be cautious, but people did not say 2019 is the year of recession. And I'm curious, Barry, from your perspective, your vantage point, I guess, you know, in charge of a global business with operations in so many markets, um, does that kind of chime with your own view of the, um, of the global economic situation? Yes, I do think there's uncertainty. I think, you know, in our UK office, particularly with banking and others, there's nervousness, you know, are we going to have to change or move or should we be spending? Um, I think, you know, certainly with the China, U.S., we're seeing some of the tension with certain brands. So I think, you know, for better or for worse right now, we're a little bit in a month-by-month -month economy. Um, people kind of not committing long-term, kind of used to be quarter-by-quarter. Quarter, now they're saying, well, how are our numbers now and should we spend next month and what's going to happen? So I think that uncertainty is impacting um, the marketing and communications business for sure. Indeed. So we've talked a little bit, or maybe we've talked a lot, about the risks that the world is facing. Um, and that kind of takes us, I guess, to our sixth learning. Um, we are clearly, it seems, living in an era of increasing CEO activism. Uh, and in particular, we're seeing CEOs taking the lead on trying to tackle some of these risks and addressing some of these social issues, taking strong stances on social or political issues. And in many cases, you know, issues that are completely unrelated from their company's businesses. So for example, you know, a good example I, I always say is, is Mark Benioff, who's one of the poster children for this kind of movement. Um, he is a, a strong advocate of gun control. He's um, uh, doing a lot to try and protect the world's oceans. Um, 
Now, none of this activity is unwelcome, but I think it's clear that this kind of CEO activism is far more pronounced than it has ever been before. I mean, even, let's say, five to ten years ago, it was very rare to see CEOs sticking their heads above the parapet and taking a visible stance, certainly not on policy issues beyond perhaps advocating for lower tax, let's say, maybe. Um, but now we are seeing CEOs um, going public on a range of issues. Uh, and it raises a lot of questions, I think, Barry. You know, first of all, there's, there's a question of whether they're doing it um, in, a, in a credible fashion um, or whether it is just virtue signaling. And then, then secondly, there's the whole issue around what issues should they be tackling and how should they be doing it, um, which, of course, is something that communications professionals like yourself have to consider. So I do think, you know, we're at a moment where CEOs are kind of, many of them, becoming the rock stars and celebrities in their own right and feel much more comfortable speaking out, not only about issues that are aligned with their company, but issues that they're personally passionate about. And that's been a huge change, particularly with stakeholders following companies so closely. One of the things that we talk about is the most important factor is authenticity. And I believe, you know, you can use your influence to support critical causes. Um, often those causes are relevant to your business and you can leverage both ways, but if not, they need to be relevant. So when Mark talks about the oceans, right, he talks about having a home in Hawaii and what that means to him and everything. So it, it is genuine and I think that's where we have to be careful. I think, you know, many CEOs are still talking about things that are aligned with their companies. You know, Chibani CMO, Hamdi Ulukana, you know, really took on the refugee issue and crisis and immigrants and things, but what did he do? He then employed many of them to work in his business and took the responsibility of helping them get jobs and make a business case for the value. So sometimes you're seeing these two things intertwine. Um, Manpower Group CEO Janus, Jonas Pricing said, it has to be authentic. There might be a temptation to confuse your brand and positions that might not be representative or not true to who you are as an organization or what you stand for. And we're seeing a mix of this. We're seeing companies like Patagonia in the U.S. Right, step in um, in areas around you know, our natural preserving, you know, our natural forests and reserves and things like that and taking a real stance even on political and government issues. So I think in many cases too, as you know, we're pulling back maybe on climate issues, companies are moving forward and saying we're actually going to do more. We're going to meet those deadlines sooner. So we're in this moment where corporate CEOs have real power in deciding what is on the political agenda, what is on the social agenda, and how are they going to use their companies and their own voice for good in many ways. And, and just very quickly, if I may, I mean, what's your advice to a CEO who's just really uncomfortable about taking a public stance? I mean, is it now the case that they have to do it? It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's par for the course. Well, I think, look, it's not for every CEO, and I think you can tell when it doesn't come naturally to a CEO, it's tough. So we work with a lot of executives, and I'm sure many of you on the phone do too, to get to a place where they can talk about things that are meaningful. Sometimes for those types of CEOs, it's easier for them to be very aligned with their company. 
But I do think, you know, both people who want to work for it, and we'll talk about in a minute, you know, they want to work for companies and people that have a certain value system, and articulating that value system today can be a difference maker. Yeah. So that brings us very nicely to number seven, because I think it's clear from the, from the conversations we had in Davos last week, indeed, from um, a couple of, of sessions, including one that the Holmes Report ran, that the employees seem to be driving a lot of the CEO activism. And, and when CEOs are asked why they're taking on social issues, um, the most common response is because their employees expected of them, and it helps make their companies um, better places to work and, 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 and better at recruiting and retaining the best talent, which is very difficult in a, in a very tight labor market. Um, but again, this is also a shift, I feel. I mean, I know we've, all, we've always talked about the importance of employees as a stakeholder group. But if you go back five years, for example, I think the shareholder still reigns supreme. I think um, at the risk of offending anyone, sometimes internal comms are seen as the, the place where corporate communicators, um, you know, stagnated perhaps in terms of, of, of their careers. Uh, and now, of course, it's... Um, it's, it's, it's big business now, employee engagement, and this seems to be where all the action is. Well, it doesn't totally surprise me that we're in a moment where there's a low employment rate and kind of a fight for talent in many industries, right? So start with that overlay, but I do think that what communicators have known for a long time is coming to the forefront in the C-suite, and that is that employers and employees really create their own brand ambassadors. And there seems to be rising awareness of the stakeholder and their needs. In fact, the Young Presidents Organization released the results last week of its 2019 Global Leadership Study, which demonstrated that shareholders, believe it or not, in their study now rank fourth in stakeholder prioritization. So we know employees rank first, but any guesses of who's second or third? You might be surprised, right, that second, no surprises, customers, but third, and this is the one that took me by surprise the most, is the leaders' families. So people that are related to the employees have become such a stakeholder group in terms of understanding that. And, you know, PayPal CEO Dan Schulman talked about at Davos how employees are proud to work at their companies, right, that they're more likely to serve their customers better and lead to happier shareholders and more engaged if they're happy employees. And we've seen that a lot in that level of engagement. You know, Unilever's new CEO, Alan Joke, talked about how programs now are designed to align employees' personal values with company values. So there, a lot of companies are talking to their employees and understanding what's important to them and then making that kind of part of the company's mission because it helps retain people when you believe your values are aligned with your company. So I think we're seeing this whole concept of trust and transparency with internal communications. You know, you hosted a panel a little bit on kind of the rage and what's going on out there now. And I think, you know, David um, Kamenetsky of AB InBev also talked about that employees are usually the first to detect a problem and truly a cancer for the company when its own employees lose trust or accuracy. So this whole idea of putting employees first, 
of making them engage, letting them know information, being authentic and aligning with your company values is becoming more and more important in the competitive economy today. Absolutely. I think the, one of the other points David Kamenetsky and others I'm sure made was it's also a way to mitigate reputation risk, I feel, because um, it, it's very clear that if a company is, is, is serious about its reputation and is doing all it can to protect it, that starts with making sure employees are on board and are um, you know, visible, visibly bought in and are advocating for the company and the company is listening to their concerns. Um, and so that is, I think, something of a shift. Um, yeah. But it's a very welcome one, and I think it's one that plays to the strengths um, of the public relations industry, which is which is nice to see. Um, okay, so for our next one, Barry, you mentioned earlier that this was the most laid-back Davos. Um, <laughs> I wasn't alluding to this, I promise. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's because uh, this was the year when apparently cannabis had its coming out party at Davos. Unlike in previous years when we saw the advent of, of technologies such as blockchain, um, I think cannabis was, was kind of a new kid on the block this year. There was a cannabis lounge, there was discussions about the business opportunity around cannabis. Um, how important was this, do you feel? Well, just to be clear for the World Economic Forum, this was outside of the convention center. So often, for those of you that haven't been, there's the kind of web program inside the conference center. And then as we talk about the Palais and all um, you know, the tech companies, the consulting companies, even countries setting up along down, up and down the promenade, taking over stores with spaces. And that's where the cannabis conversation was happening. Um, but we had, you know, Canopy Growth, a Canadian cannabis company now, has the world's largest market value in that category, and it's worth twice as much as Macy's. You know, you saw Canada, Canada as you said, having a cannabis house, the Canada Cannabis House, and you had people like former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, you had Anthony Scaramucci and others speaking on this topic and really starting to legitimize this as a business. And, you know, we're at an interesting point. You know, 66% of Americans actually believe um, that recreational marijuana should be legal, and yet we have the Super Bowl this weekend. You can't advertise marijuana. You can't ring the bell at the New York Stock Exchange or be listed. So it was interesting to me that I think that this is becoming a huge business opportunity. It has an impact on the economy, and you're starting to see signals in places like this that you know, it's something that's going to have to be dealt with as we move forward, you know, as the business gets legitimized and gets bigger and bigger. But, so you wouldn't be surprised to see cannabis on the official WEF program by 2020? I would not, no. Okay. We'll I have to wait and you heard see. It. It, it certainly was, you know, up and down the streets kind of part of the conversation this year. Part of the conversation, I should say. Nothing more than that. Nothing more than that. Right, okay, so back to more serious issues. Um, and number nine, perhaps the most serious issue of all, and again, this is a, a theme that has resonated at Davos every year, um, and that is income inequality. And it's interesting to me because companies take on now a range of um, issues 
that they like to advocate for and try to tackle as part of their commitment to purpose. Um, but the one they take on the least often, I've observed, is income inequality. Um, yeah. And that comes despite the calls at Davos and elsewhere um, because income inequality increases inexorably every year. I mean, Oxfam's annual research found this year that the world's top 26 billionaires have as much wealth as the poorest 3.8 billion people, which, of course, is half the planet. Um, are you seeing action on this, Barry? Well, I think, you know, it certainly is a moment to shine the spotlight on the attendees at Davos, and we know that. And I think that there is this discrepancy, right, that, you know, 10,000 people die per day to lack of health care. There are 262 million children not in school. And a lot of that is just parents can't afford the uniforms, the textbooks, the fees. So, you know, Oxfam always uses this as a moment. Um, to say that, you know, governments have sat back and not done their job, and so how do we change this kind of dichotomy of wealth, if you will? I think, you know, you see a lot about public-private partnerships. You know, you saw recently Microsoft investing and even building housing in their backyard to make affordable housing. You know, you're seeing, you know, governments and businesses being pushed to step up. Um, but I think there is this issue that we have to tackle. You know, IMF Managing Director Christine Lagarde said, we're seeing some incentive systems moving in a direction that I find not exactly aligned with the sense of purpose. It can't just be single-mindedly the pursuit of profit. It has to be multifaceted and it has to take into account multi-stakeholders. So I do think this is an area where there is a lot of conversation the question is, as we're getting into climate change, how do we get into the areas that are going to really make the shift and make a difference? And I think that's where we still have some work to do, for sure. Yeah, and I think very, very important here is, is the whole aspect of tax, correct? And I think many of us will have seen the video that's being circulated widely um, on social media of a discussion from um, WEF last week where um, there's a historian alongside Oxfam's uh, Winnie Yanima saying, you know, there's all this talk of philanthropy for the last decade at Davos, but really there needs to be a much more serious policy around tax and about cor corporate tax, yeah. paying, paying tax rather than, you know, investing in tax avoidance strategies. Okay, so let's move on to number 10. And this, I guess, is, is kind of a little bit related to our earlier conversation um, around the perils and promise of yeah. technology. Um, there was a lot of talk about privacy as a human right, which interests me that, that that actually has to be spelled out. But I guess it's not so surprising when we see the behavior of, of maybe some of the digital platforms. Um, how did that conversation play out? Yeah, well, I think you're seeing more and more discussion about that. You know, Microsoft um, CEO Satya Nadella praised the GDPR um, last week and really came out pretty strong that he said, you know, I hope the world will agree on a common standard that preserves the right for people to own and control their own personal data. And that's been, you know, an issue, and Will I Am others have spoken about that on the celebrity front as well for a lot of years now. But other people joined the conversation this year. You know, Japanese Prime Minister um, Shinzo Abe talked about the country's hosting of the G20 and the opportunity to advocate for international guidelines on data usage. 
And this is in contrast, right, to China's proposed plan to implement a social credit system. So we saw two sides of the spectrum there where, you know, China's talking about gathering personal data of its citizens and assigning them a score based on their behavior and trustworthiness. So there was a lot of things um, that were happening here. And, you know, George Soros came out and highly criticized China. Um, and this two sides to this are, I think, what I would say the common theme was is that we need um, it to be classified as a human right in order to have better controls and better thinking around the globe of how to protect and put protection around this. And there was a lot of um, discussion, too, about kind of bias in the system um, around, right, and kind of the whole idea of facial recognition, and maybe you can comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, this is a, one, one of the issues around, you know, the perils of tech versus the promise. Um, you know, we, we know facial recognition has people both excited and concerned. The technology can be used for identifying missing children or diagnose, diagnosing rare diseases. Um, but, you know, the best session I think I saw this last week in Davos was um, from a young Ghanaian-American computer scientist named Joy um, Bualamwini, who's based at the MIT Media Lab, and she's actually the founder of an organization called, sounds very cool, called the Algorithmic Justice League, um, which uh, aims to highlight bias in algorithms. And she was just... I mean, the, the, the kind of stuff she was coming out with, the research they've done um, on facial recognition programs, found that it frequently misrepresents the faces of dark-skinned people. So, you know, it's an issue for, for someone like me. It's much more of an issue for a darker-skinned woman, in fact. They, they are recognized the least. Um, and that has real implications, because uh, when there is bias, then you can in inaccurately characterize people. Uh, and then you can see them, you know, it may have implications in terms of their social credit score. Um, and, and this scientist, Joy, I think also gets points because she delivered her talk in um, it's a kind of spoken word poem, which, um, which was, was very interesting. But I, I'd urge everyone to look her up because I think the work that she's doing is, is really interesting. It will make you rethink, I think, you know, the way that technology is viewed um, by different groups um, and, and see technology not just as a purely a functional issue, but actually a diversity and inclusion issue. Uh, and that takes us quite nicely to our last point, um, which is, of course, a, you know, the conversation um, around inclusion uh, and perhaps a more inclusive definition of inclusion. Did you feel that um, the, 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 the conversation has expanded to, to encompass you know, the full range of, of diversity um, from, from what you saw at Davos last week? Yeah. So for those of you that have, you know, followed me, you know that women's equity and pay equity and all those things have been very near and dear to my heart, and I've spoken at Davos on those topics. I think this year diversity and inclusion was much broader, and I enjoyed that the discussions were really beyond gender parity and looking at inclusion overall. Um, you know, one of the things that you do see, and I'll touch on the women's issue for a moment, is, you know, the progress is slow. We're up to 22% women this year. Um, it was 21% last year. But I think progress is slow in the world um, when it comes to top female leaders and pay equity and things like that. I will say Shelly Zalas did a great job with the FQ Lounge, um, hosted by the Female Quotient. 
They had a huge kind of space right outside the conference center in the Panorama Hotel that had lots of speakers and engaging conversation and became a place for a lot of women who might not have been in the convention center to convene and share and even some of those that were. So I think that that was a great um, place to kind of convene and see a lot of women at Davos. Um, but I also think that we have a long way to go. I mean, it's, you know, pay equity, they're saying now, is still 108 years away, and that's just unacceptable to me. But the other thing um, that I will say is that I think where we even Ketchum and Omnicom got involved this year is our parent company, Omnicom, was one of the founding partners um, to do two things. One is I was able to represent us launching a new partnership for global LGBTI equality. Um, and the goal when we were one of the seven first companies to try to get hundreds of companies signed up to help operationalize the UN standards for LGBTI human rights by 2020. And I think that what's great about being in marketing and communications is we can not only do that in our own employee base and allow our employees to bring their whole selves to work and be themselves, but we can use marketing and communications to also showcase to the world, right, different types of family units and gay and lesbian couples. And we know that by showcasing them in marketing materials and employee materials that it helps societal change. It helps people see and accept differences among people. So I think that's exciting. And then the other thing that we saw at Davos this year was a real focus on disability. Um, in the conference center, um, the Smithsonian and Cooper Hewitt had great display of all different, you know, braille watches and different prosthetics that were much easier. There was even like a cane now that when it fell over, you could use your foot to pop it back up, right? So design changes that made it easier um, for people with disabilities to be more included. Um, one of my dear friends, Janet Riccio, has really been a force behind something called the Valuable 500, which aims to have 500 companies promise to make disability part of their inclusion and diversity program. And we're even seeing companies look at how do they better market um, to diverse um, audiences with ageism and sight issues. How can we help you now you know, shop in store and find something when you're having trouble reading the labels? Or if you go in um, to our client Fidelity now, you know, they can help if you sign to have live translation and things like that to give you access to things. So, I think we're seeing that. Um, we're seeing more focus on mental health and ageism. And the last one I would say is, you know, this year's annual meeting had some interesting co-chairs. Um, and one of the co-chairs was Mohammed Hassan Mohammed, who is a refugee. He's a Sudanese refugee. I heard him speak um, the first night. He has literally grown up um, in a refugee camp that has 185,000 displaced people in Kenya. Um, he's lived there for more than 20 years, so he hasn't really known a different lifestyle. And yet he has no passport, no official birth date. You know, he needs to apply for a visa even to go to the nearest community um, to leave, so he has no freedom. And he talked about, you know, that we shouldn't see refugees as a burden anymore. We should see them as people that want to do good for ourselves, that want to contribute to society, and we want to feel included. And so I think for the first time, too, this year, the refugee discussion turned to how do we include these people in society? How do we migrate them back in to be productive members of society and not 
treat them as, you know, outcasts. And so to me, this whole idea of inclusion and creating a more inclusive society was probably one of the most heartening parts of Davos this year because I think it really spread um, to different types of communities and ways that we can all make meaningful contributions if we think differently about different types of people and how do we make them comfortable not only in the halls um, of our offices and businesses, but how do we help in general to kind of change some of the perceptions of whether it's refugees or people with disabilities um, or pay equity or other areas? How do we use our own business, right, to help make societal change in the world? Yeah, uh, very well said. I, I felt um, Muhammad's message was, was really powerful um, when I heard it on that first night. Um, you know, really a plea for inclusion from, yeah. from, a, from a community that is um, de denied, denied that, that right. Um, and, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that Davos does get a lot of stick. The World Economic Forum does get a lot of criticism. But to have... Um, Muhammad as one of the co-chairs, I think, uh, was it? Yeah. It sent a strong signal this year. And I think, you know, what you heard through the webcast today, right, is the 16-year-old act activist, the, you know, refugee camp person who's living and telling their personal stories, you know, the algorithm and facial recognition and poetry, you know, they really are trying to bring different types of people together and to have those people interact with politicians and business people um, to create a different narrative and to help people think differently. And I do think, you know, you talked about in the beginning about the convening of people in one place. And I know Davos does get a lot of sometimes stigma and the planes do fly in. But what I always hope is that these are the people of power that can actually take these messages back out. And I take that to heart and think about how we in our industry and our companies can really help make change, right, and can help listen to these narratives and these stories and young and old people and take away some different thinking every year. And I think that it does stimulate different thinking both in the mainstream conversations and the behind, you know, bilateral conversations of, you know, are there ways that business and government and NGOs can have a greater impact on things, and um, like we said in the beginning, I do think this year was more focused on action, um, kind of less high up talk, and more about you know better packaging, you know getting the plastics out of the ocean, um, you know reskilling. How do we make sure that we create you know hybrid careers and change education versus just say you know we're all doomed because robots are going to take over the world? So it was a much more I think positive reframing in some ways of the focus. Um, the economic side of it, as we said, a little uncertainty, um, and we're all feeling that, um, no doubt, so it's not a surprise um, as we go into the year ahead. And certainly, you know, the idea of globalization that I think maybe two years ago we hoped was closer and we were going to have more kind of collaboration globally. Um, the spotlight this year is a little bit back to nationalism and people having their own challenges at home, and I think that's something that we're going to have to hopefully work for um, and work harder at um, with some of our leadership in government right now. We're not seeing as much of everyone coming together globally to solve some of the challenges. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Barry. Those really useful insights. Um, I think we have at least five minutes um, and possibly more. So thank you all, everyone, for listening. I hope you found that useful. 
Uh, and I'm going to hand back to Susanna now to conduct the Q&A. Thank you. Um, we've had a question in from um, an employee in our New York office, um, and the question is, is getting into AI and understanding its implication for business table stakes for companies, or is it more of a nice to have at this point? So I would say it's a table stake, that I think AI is having an impact on all kinds of data, and right, if you're in healthcare, it's kind of how do you combine all the data to get to better outcomes, to get to quicker diagnosis, to get to cures. If it's in our business, right, we're using AI-empowered tools to identify influencers and channel marketing, and you're looking at predictive analytics. I think that in block, you know, blockchain is having a huge impact in AI and the supply chain. So there was not a business that I could see, I don't know about you, Arun, but didn't have some implications for AI in the future and for people to adopt it. And I think it was a lot more this year about starting to understand those implications and not being such a foreign thing anymore. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it is table stakes now. I mean, it may not be that AI will completely disrupt every industry, but it will certainly have some sort of an impact, and it certainly can have some sort of an impact. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to understand what that impact yeah. will be. Great, thank you. And another question, you had mentioned um, hybrid jobs and the essential nature of human creativity. Um, were there any particulars about how this new dynamic will manifest itself, um, and what can creative practitioners do now to prepare for these changes? Well, I think, you know, when you think about hybrid jobs, and you even think like a lot of people in our industry have said, you know, we're a little bit safe because we're creative and we bring that creative integration. Um, but I do think, you know, it creates a more skilled workforce, right? So we're going to look at, we've kind of skewed a little bit toward right now, if you're an engineer um, and engineerings are in demand, well, it's interesting, even my own son just graduated from college with a degree that did not exist three years ago. Um, it's called TAM, Technology, Arts, and Media in the School of Engineering. So he's learning things like design and 3D modeling and how to code and how to bring those things to life. And so when you think about that kind of career, right, it's, it's, you need the technical side, but you also need the creative side. So I think we're going to see that. You're seeing that um, in design, right, in terms of, you know, when you look at um, even companies, right, like Apple, I would say are early indicators of people that are creating something that's user interface is so easy. Um, and simple because of the design. So those kinds of things in the future, right, if we're interacting with robots, with technology, with software, if we're, you know, trying to order things, um, you know, via our phone and how that interaction is going to be, all those things are a combination of the coding and technology side, but the user interface side, and I think we're just going to see more and more of that. Great. Final question um, from Morgan McBride. Which of these topics covers do you see as the most significant in terms of how Ketchum as a company is shifting to address these issues internally versus for our clients? Well, I think the right brain, left brain that we've been talking about is that we are all going to have to get better at analytics. We're going to have to get better at understanding the front end to get to clear insight, to taking the big data. I mean, our, our companies that we work for and marketers have so much data. How do we help them interpret that data? How do we find the right channel management and the right way to get to mass personalization and engagement in different ways? 
But we know it's not just about identifying the channel or measuring the result, but it's having the right creative that breaks through um, and resonates with them. And so I think, you know, as we think about the future, um, you know, words like algorithms and outcomes and channel management and paid amplification and things are just going to become table stakes for us as a business. And so the reskilling of our own workforce, the adding different types of talent to make sure that we understand the business of our clients and can have a real impact on their business results when it comes to sales and reputation is going to be embracing the left brain side in addition to the creative side. I think you already have an activist CEO. <laughs> I'm working on it. Well, thank you all for joining. Hopefully this was informative. There's so much we're still processing. I know Arun and I from last week, but hopefully we gave you a little glimpse of what it's like to um, be there, some of the content that was coming out of there, and some of the implications for our industry at large. Thank you all. Thank you very much, Barry. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.